Test Podcast featuring National Master Derek Zhang. Welcome back, everyone, to the 64 A Chess Podcast. Today, I'm joined by National Master Derek Zhang. Uh, how are you doing, my friend? Doing very well. Happy to be here. Yeah, so um, I have been acquainted with Derek through the LCWL on chess.com. We both play for the United States team. And I think it's been, uh, we play for the U.S. Chess Federation's team. Uh, I know that uh, we've been getting smoked. So in brief, uh, do you want to kind of explain what this league is and, and what's, uh, what's been happening with the drama with that? Sure. So the LCWL stands for the Live Trust World League, which is a live trust competition that pits different country teams against each other. Currently, U.S. Chess is in Division Two of the LCWL, so we're a good team, but we're not that good. I think currently we get maybe 50 to 60 players a match, which is a great turnout, but when you compare that to a team like Russia or Ukraine, for example, the LCWL final two years ago between those two teams had, I think, 720, 730 boards, something crazy like that. So... Yeah, it's, ex it's an exciting competition, great opportunity for players of all levels to represent their country in matches against other countries. Um, so, you know, since this is, of course, this is online, um, do you sense, like, when, when we're in the league that you, have you ever, like, for example, played against somebody you suspected was, was cheating or something like that? Or do you think that this is, like, too low stakes for somebody to do that? No, absolutely. <laughs> I, I felt that sometimes. Um, I'm actually from Seattle, Washington, and I do some fair play work with the Washington Chess Federation. So I have a bit of a sense with that. And sometimes you can just tell, right? Like a player who is, you look at their profile and they're new to chess.com. They've only played like 20 games or something. They've won a high percentage of those games. And when you play them, they're spending five to 10 seconds on every move even obvious recaptures or like moving their king out of check, for example. And those games are pretty easy to tell. What is harder is there, you can get a sense that some players do take these competitions more seriously than their normal games. And what will happen in those cases is, you know, a player will just have their regular chess.com account, but in these two or three uh, live chess world league games, every weekend, maybe they'll flip on the computer for a few moves. And in those games, it'll feel very suspicious when you play them. But because those games represent such a small sample of the total games, the total number of games they play on chess.com, it's hard for the algorithm to catch them. So those are the more annoying ones. When you sense it and you submit a fair play report, but there maybe isn't enough statistical evidence for chess.com to actually ban those players. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that uh, especially, you know, given there's this huge online drama about chess cheating recently with uh, the guy from Indonesia that uh, Gotham Chess was playing. I think it's it's always something that kind of comes into the spotlight. And uh, I, I, I do think that there so you said you've done fair play work for the Washington Chess Federation. Has that been like online or has it been also like, you know, just finding finding cheaters over the board? No, I mean, when we play over the board tournaments, it's 
very easy to detect cheating, or at least it's very easy to know uh, if you're right or not when you accuse somebody of cheating, right? Because you can look at their, you can look through their things, you can see if they have a phone, a earpiece, something like that. But when it's online, it's hard to tell. So with the Washington Chess Federation, how we do it is pretty much we have a panel of master level players or better who review games both you know, with their own experience. And then there's also some uh, software that you can use to you know, match the percentage of moves that a player plays to you know, the percentage of moves that uh, a player makes that match up with, with engine moves. And, you know, through that, you can get a pretty good idea of who's cheating and who's not cheating. But yeah, I mean, with online, it's, it's just hard to tell, right? You can never be sure. I mean, you can have a 1400 player who maybe performs at the 1700 level consistently over a few tournaments. And even then, when you feel like they're, you know, outperforming their ratings so much, it can be hard to pull the trigger and really ban them because oftentimes, well, first off, you don't really know. I mean, maybe this player really did study, you know, chess nonstop for a few months during the pandemic and they really are that much better now. You know, probabilistically they aren't, but there is always that chance. And especially with so many players who are playing online tournaments now being really young, you don't want to falsely accuse somebody or ban them from online tournaments and have that affect their interest and trust. So it's difficult with online, but uh, yeah, it's difficult with catching cheaters online. Do you think that, um, do you think that there's uh, a future of online chess, like a, a kind of a renaissance in, in the way that, you know, we see games like League of Legends, um, for example, and Overwatch and Valorant now, you know, a lot of younger people getting into these games and uh, this is I'll just, I know like in League of Legends, for example, not that I even play much anymore, but there's been a huge initiative to kind of have competitive play at all levels beyond just the ranked ladder, like to have, I think it's called Clash that they've done where you can kind of enter tournaments now, like even as the, the worst player in the world can enter these kinds of like these, these prize tournaments. Um, and so to me, what I've liked about the LCWL, even though, you know, I'm busy with school myself, so I don't always get to play as much as I want to in the, at least in the rapid sections, but um, something I really appreciate about that is that you do get some very high quality, like competitive chess, find somebody who's usually either a lot better than you or who you're matching up against. And, you know, you get, you get good battles against them. And so, I mean, do you think that, like, do, I guess, do you sense that there is uh, a future for chess as like a proper esport? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think online chess mainly has a future in shorter time control, right? And I think that goes back to the issue of maintaining fair play. But I think, yeah, absolutely, online chess has a future in shorter time controls. Definitely, there will be many more online tournaments where you know you can play in them from the comfort of your home, even prize tournaments online, I think. But I think there will always still be a place for over-the-board chess as well, classical chess, like games longer than 30 minutes or so. I know for myself, I just don't like sitting in front of a computer and like playing a chess game for that long. So even though there have been a number of classical or longer time control tournaments online. I haven't really played that many. Um, but yeah, I think 
I think it'll be a good split, you know, shorter time controls work well with online trust. And I think there will be a focus on uh, online chess tournaments with shorter time controls. But I think also over the board chess with longer time controls will stay relevant as well. So let's talk a little bit about your own uh, chess career. Cause I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm kind of curious to just to hear about that. So I guess first, first of all, when did you start playing chess? And I guess something that I'm interested in is when did you realize that you maybe had the potential to become like a master level player? Okay. So I started playing chess when I was four, I think. And it was started as a, both of my parents work. So it started as a thing where when I went to elementary school, I had to choose some after school club because my parents couldn't pick me up right after school. So I kind of fell into chess by accident. And when I was five, I played in my first tournament. And I think, I think I won the prize for the top unrated player. And I was like, I was not that good. Like I got scholars made it in my first tournament game. And then my second tournament game, I turned around and scholars made it my opponent. <laughs> like it was like, it was a mess. <laughs> but by some chance, I got that unrated, you know, top unrated prize. And I got this like small trophy or whatever. And my parents tell me that like I slept with that trophy for the first couple of days after I won it. Um, so yeah, when I, when I was five already, like I just felt, you know, chess was interesting. And then that first tournament really made me feel like, you know, this is something I could be good at. And then as far as when I knew I could become a master, I mean, that's a difficult question. Probably as soon as I started playing USCF rated tournaments, really. Um, yeah, when I was in second grade, I won the K-3 U-800 section at the Scholastic Nationals. And it was like an under 800 section. So realistically, it wasn't that big of a deal. But they give you this like giant three, three or four foot trophy or something. And I remember that being very encouraging as well. Um, I mean, I feel like at that point, I felt like I could probably become a grandmaster even, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, life gets in the way, school gets in the way. So I'm only a national master. <laughs> yeah, only. Yeah. Still, uh, I mean, that's still way better than, you know, most people, 99% of people. Um, have you, you know, you got the title a few years ago, I think, right? Uh, yeah, 2017. Right. So have you had ambitions to maybe try and, you know, climb up. I know you're also a candidate master at FIDE. I checked your profile there. Have you kind of had ambitions to maybe find time to do some, some over the board tournaments and, and pursue that? Or is it just more like you don't really care at this point? Right now I'm like semi-retired yeah. <laughs> from OTD trust. Um, I think part of it is because it took me so long to get that last like 50 to hundred points to master. I mean, I think I broke 2,100 in maybe sixth or seventh grade. And at some point I was like 20 points away from the title. And it took me another one and a half or two years after that 
to get mastered. Like I was going up and down between 2120 and like 2270. I think if I had broke master right away, definitely I would have had more ambitions to get a higher title or to do something else. But but really once I started high school, I, I had less time for trust. And I got master in the spring of my freshman year of high school, I think. And once I got it, I was just kind of like, okay, that's it. Like I've made it to where I want to be. And after that, there wasn't too much ambition to go further from that. Now, do you, um, do you play in title Tuesday on uh, chess.com? Cause I know you do, you do have that title or have you just like, I don't really care. I try to, when I can, uh, the economics department at my college likes to schedule classes for Tuesday from 11:45 to like 1:35. <laughs> like all the major required like upper level econ courses are during that time, which is right when Title Tuesday is. So I haven't been playing too much recently, but I try to when I can. Are you um? So you're an econ major. Where do you go to college? Uh, I go to the University of Florida. Oh, nice. Yeah, actually, I was uh, I was waitlisted to a graduate program there. Fun fact. Oh. Uh, yeah, so um, that's all good. Um, yeah, I mean, is there a chess scene in the uh, University of Florida? Or are you part of that or just, again, you're more like focused on school? Yeah, I mean, we have a chess club here, but it's definitely more uh, more casual. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of the Collegiate Chess League. Yeah. So, I mean, my school has like a quote unquote chess club too, but I think like last year, the best player was about 2,100 and the rest of us were like, like really bad, like, you know, anywhere from like 800 to 1400 ELO, I think were the like next best players. But two of us, I mean, me and some other guy, we improved like insane, like, like over the last year, I think like we're both like, he's like 2000 ELO. I'm like 1900 now. So like we were like grinding for a whole year, like really grinding, but um, I remember we were thinking about entering this collegiate like chess league in last year and we we're like, oh, but we don't really know how this works or where we get the funding or whatever. So yeah, well, why do you, maybe you could explain that a bit more. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much a uh, online blitz competition between colleges. And the reason why I bring that up is um, for us at UF, we were in division two of the collegiate chess league this past year. And in large part, it was because my trust.com blitz rating is like 2550. So that pulled up our average rating to a point where we were playing in division two. And our next highest rated player is like 1900 on chess.com. So we were playing these matches against other colleges where like I would go 4 0 for the most part. And then the other players on our team would have a tough time because we were playing teams with a uh, average of like 2200 chess.com blitz rating but they would be like pretty even across the board so i would be playing down 300 points every round but my teammates would be playing up like 300 400 points every round um yeah so i mean at uf it's definitely more casual than competitive and like in the state of florida as a whole i mean not to rag on florida chess at all but it's been surprisingly quiet as far as the trust scene. Like I know in Washington, because I'm still connected to to trust there. I mean, like there are multiple online tournaments every month. And, you know, a number of grandmasters giving private lessons and 
a lot of really strong players who are active. And in Florida, I think I've seen like three or four serious online tournaments since last August or something. So it's definitely been, chess has definitely taken a backseat here, I would say. Yeah, I was actually, I was in Miami last January and um, I was like, maybe there's a OTB chess tournament. There's like, there was nothing for like a hundred miles in the state of Florida. I'm like, that's crazy. You know, I, you, you take it, you take it for, for granted. I mean, I'm from New York, so you have Marshall chess club and you have uh, like all these opportunities um, even beyond Marshall to, uh, to kind of play chess, learn chess in the city. And um, I think in New York, it's pretty well supported chess. I mean, it's, you know, it's all the public schools teach chess and stuff like that. But, and I, I think Washington too has uh, has, I, I know has a good scene. I think actually Texas too, like in Dallas, of course, St. Louis, but you would think, I mean, Miami is a pretty big city. You would think that they have something, but like, you know, a whole city of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and nothing. That was, that was pretty astonishing to me. So I'm, I'm not really surprised that you even say that. Yeah. I mean, I think when you, when you look at Florida chess, part of the reason why it's not as developed maybe as, you know, other states of the same population, like Texas, New York, California, is that Florida just has so many large cities and they're spread out geographically. So when you host a tournament in one city, it can be difficult to get enough players to make that viable because all the cities are just, you know, spread out. Whereas California, most of the big cities are, you know, within driving distance of each other and same for New York and, uh, and Texas too. Have you, um, yeah. So I'm also, I'm wondering, have you ever, have you ever coached before? Have you ever like, like given lessons to maybe lower rated players or is that something that interests you or. So I did, I did coach. Um, I did volunteer coaching for a local middle school, my last two years of high school, which was very nice. And I haven't uh, explicitly been advertising private coaching, but I did do private coaching for one of the students at that middle school. So I have done a, a bit of coaching, but not too much. Um, yeah, now, now I'm going to ask some more like chess oriented questions. So first of all, I'm wondering, I'm, you must have played a lot of tournaments in, in America and I don't know if it was mostly limited to Washington or if you were traveling a lot, but um, is there one tournament that you've played, you know, whether here or abroad or online, that's like particularly memorable to you? Hmm. Well, for me, it would probably be the 2012 American Open in Orange, California. I think I was probably, how old was I? I was probably like 10 years old. And it was like my first major tournament outside of Washington, besides the National Scholastics. I remember I was like 1600 at the time and I played in the under 1800 uh, section. So I wasn't really expecting to win or to do that well. But by some stroke of luck or, you know, skill, maybe, <laughs> I managed to tie for first in the section. And I think the first prize was $1,500 which was just huge for a 10 year old. Yeah, that's crazy. And yeah, I mean, I think at that point, it was just the, one of those tournaments that really, you know, 
got me into chess and traveling around and playing because I mean, to a kid, it's like, wow, I can make $1,500 playing chess. That's crazy. Do you, do you know who the, like, have you went over the board at least, who is the strongest player you've ever beaten? Maybe don't, don't remember the name. Uh, this one's easy, actually. I beat Grandmaster James Targan in a tournament at the Pacific Northwest Chess Center uh, last January, I think. January 2020. Was that your and, was that Yeah, your that was my first win over a Grandmaster. And it was very memorable because uh, I don't think I really deserve the win, right? Like, I, I just got a winning position out of the opening thanks to some nice opening prep. And I had to think for maybe two moves after that. And then he resigned. So it's not entirely deserved or due to my own skill, but it was still memorable nonetheless. Were you like preparing that opening like a chess base or something or just we chess or? Uh, it was a line that my coach came up with actually. Grandmaster Julio Sedora, who is also the coach of the UT Dallas trustee. Oh, so you, um, so you have a coach? Well, not anymore because I'm, I'm a little bit retired from chess, but I did have a coach at that point, yes. That's pretty cool. Was it, were, were you being coached like virtually or? Um, oh yeah, yeah, online, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of kids or not even kids, but a lot of chess players just get uh, coaching online these days, even before the pandemic, because it's a lot easier to connect with, you know, great coaches wherever they are. And you're not limited to just whoever's in your local proximity. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, my, my coaches uh, also, I've, I've, I've gotten two coaches at this point and they've both been like, I met them online and stuff. So bchess.org slash coaches, you know, mm -hmm. uh, speaking of which I know, I know you play on chess.com and, uh, I think as a titled player, I think you have diamond membership, but do you have a preference for chess.com or Lee chess? Is that something that you don't really care for? Uh, I consider chess.com to be a better chess website overall in terms of all of the events it offers and especially the sort of the social aspect of it, right? All of the clubs and forums and the ways you can connect with other people. I like Lee Chess better just in terms of their UI and playing interface and all of that. One thing that's interesting, if you go on, well, Lee Chess just has better lag compensation, right? Like if you go on Lee Chess, a one minute bullet game will last maybe a little over two minutes max. But what's interesting is if you go on chess.com and you challenge a friend to a game and you guys just, you know, move your pieces around randomly, pre-moving the entire game. I think a one minute bullet game will last like over three minutes, like close to four minutes. Like the lag compensation is just not as good. So I prefer Lee Chess for playing, but definitely chess.com for the social aspects, for organizing uh, matches and tournaments, you know, like the Live Trust World League. I think chess.com is superior to Lee Chess in those aspects. Yeah, I, I, I preferred Lee Chess for a very long time. And then I also think that there's something to be said about the competition too, because of, I think just where, like you started off on a chess.com account, at I think 800 ELO versus 1500 for Lee Chess. And I think what that kind of does is it ends up like the distributions 
where I'm at now, it doesn't really matter, but it did, it was significant. Um, you know, when I was more at the average rating where the people you would play on, on Lee chess were just like way stronger all the time than, than you could still win games, but I felt like it was a lot more tryhardy, And now it's very much the opposite. I feel like the competition I play on chess.com is, is better, but that is also something that you, you, so you said like the, the lag, I've noticed that too, that chess.com is, is, it is laggier. And also, like when you are pre-moving, something that's cool about Lee Chess is you don't lose time on pre-moves, but you lose time on pre-moves in Chess.com. And so there's yeah. actually like a competitive. It's it's almost like a handicap. It's it's like a, it's like it's like a baseball field with different like dimensions or something. It's really weird, like how um how that works. Like depending on the site you play on, you have to kind of like change your approach because you can actually like pre-move infinitely on leech s and never lose time which is a bit crazy and then the other difference about pre-moving is on leech s you can only pre-move one move in advance but then on chess.com you can do like you know 10 pre-moves or something yeah so it's yeah it definitely makes a big difference in bullet right like on leech s if you have half a second left and a king and a queen you can if you're good enough you can probably deliver a checkmate. But on chess.com, there's no chance because you just lose 0.1 second on every move. On the other hand, though, if you have like two seconds left, you can probably pre-move the whole sequence if you just know the pattern and it's right. Right, exactly. Which you can't do on the chess. So that, that is, it's it's weird. And then there's also other sites like like the ICC. I know, I think the ICC is basically basically dead. Um, I also chess 24. Well, I don't know what you think about chess 24. I can't withstand chess 24's interface personally. I've never created a chess 24 account. Yeah. I only go on there to watch the uh live tournament broadcast. Yeah, but the ICC, yeah, I actually grew up playing on the ICC. Like, I probably opened the ICC account in like 2006 or seven, and I created my chess.com account in like 2009 i think like the icc was the place to go for for serious chess when i when i just started playing they had like all of the grandmasters and international masters were playing on there i think they just never updated their ui and their software to a point where uh it would still be attractive to players even with chess.com and we trust and all these other things. I think it's also, it's also interesting how, yeah, I mean, like, like chess.com and Lee chess, they both kind of blew up out of nowhere. I kind of in line with this chess boom. I had like among your friends, I'm sure you have plenty of friends who don't play chess, but have you had friends since like Queens Gambit and since, you know, Twitch started like really carrying chess events have you had friends come up to you and be like, let's play a match or something like that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have a friend at Purdue actually who tested positive for COVID. So he was stuck in a quarantine dorm for two weeks and he just played trust. And then at the end, he wanted to play me. And uh, I still beat him with like queen, rook, both knights and both bishop odds. But yeah, definitely there's a lot more interest. Yeah, and I think it's pretty cool. I, you, you know, as someone who's, uh, I mean, I have a USCF ID. I think it just expired a couple of months ago, actually. But, you know, there's no over-the-board kind of stuff. But, I mean, I'm sure you've been involved in, like, USCF stuff for a lot longer than me. Do you think that there is, 
are do you think that there is a chance that this could become a more sustained kind of long-term boom for chess in the United States or is this just like some sort of short-term fad that we're seeing right now you know Anya Taylor-Joy and and uh Queen's Gambit it just like kind of led some brief burst of interest I think there will be a sustained increase in, in interest in online trust but it might be hard to transition that to over the board trust because it's it's just so easy to create an account online and play, right? And I think as there are more tournaments online and as organizers take uh, online tournaments more seriously, more people will get into that too. But on the other hand, over the board chess where you have to drive to a tournament and maybe pay for a hotel or you know give up your weekend to play, that, that might be more difficult. Do you think that that like America needs to focus on more OTB events or is, is it like a thing of the past? Cause I know me personally, I remember I played online for like a year before I did my first OTB tournament and it, it feels completely different like to, to play like online and just see everything overhead nicely. And then to see this like third dimension of, of like verticality of like the structures and stuff, stuff like that. I mean, the moves don't change, but uh, there is, it, it does feel a little more disorienting. And also the whole psychological aspect too, of like actually seeing the person you're playing. Um, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's interesting though, because you, like you said before, you can't really cheat over the board nearly as easily. Of course it happens, but over the board, like you have to like sneak into the bathroom or like have an earpiece or some, somebody like whispering you the moves from somewhere. Like it's a, it's a lot easier to detect, but even if you have these online events, it, it is also just so easy to, to, to cheat and cheat your way through. So like, um, I guess like, do you think that there, there needs to be a place for OTB chess for people? And like, is that where the future stars are going to be bred for the United States? Or like, is it just online chess all the way is the future? No, I mean, I think absolutely there still has to be a place for over the board chess. And part of it is what you mentioned about fair play, because if you, suddenly switch all of these tournaments to being online. You can never be entirely sure about fair play. Like we had that incident with, I think the uh, World Student University Championships or something where that international master from Poland got expelled from the tournament, but also they weren't explicitly accusing her of cheating, like a very odd situation. And I think part of that was because like, they were pretty sure she was cheating, but they were probably not sure enough to be willing to get sued and you know back up their claims in court. So you can never be entirely sure online. And for that reason, I think over the board chess will always have a place and over the board titles will always have a little bit more meaning, you know, at least until you have some algorithm or something that can definitively know when people are cheating online. Lastly, I'm going to ask you a little bit about, you know, do you, do you follow professional chess um, with interest or, or do you like not care as much about that? I follow the results. Uh, when I was still trying to improve, I would play through the games from the top tournaments, but I haven't had time for that as much anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting to see. Uh, it's been interesting to watch the online chess tournaments like the rapid tournaments, I really enjoyed those. I mean, with all the bond clouds and, you know, Dubov with his openings and gambits and whatever. 
yeah, Dubov is Dubov is, is inspirational. He really is uh, like putting a wedge into this whole like uh, you know engine era of of play. He's just saying, yeah, play some weird, some stuff. I I dare you to uh, to use your prep against me. Pretty yeah, I think I I think I I identify with Dubov's trust mentality a lot more now. I think Dubov has reached the point where. He's comfortable with his rating and how good he is. And he's just playing to enjoy trust and to have fun. And I notice that sometimes when I play Blitz online too. It's not always about winning at all costs anymore. Sometimes I'll see a nice sacrifice or a move that just looks so beautiful if it works. And I know probably it doesn't work, but I just have to play it because, you know, I'm just enjoying the game and I'm not worried so much about rating. I think Dubov is like that too. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I agree. I think, I mean, so who are your like favorite players, like, you know, growing up studying the chess literature, were there any guys who you particularly like enjoyed? Well, my favorite player was always Nakamura. And I think that was just a function of when I was, when I was born, really. I mean, when I was growing up, Nakamura was by far the top U S player. Along with Kamsky too, but mostly Nakamura. But as far as like stylistically or, you know, what's my favorite player in terms of I really enjoy their games. I never really studied top player games when I was improving. So it's probably a bit odd that I'm a national master and like you can name some players from the past and I won't have a great handle on their style or how they play but that's just how I improved and yeah I mean I don't think I could tell you what player what top player from the present or past I identify with stylistically interesting that's really interesting like because I mean wow I mean so if I mean if you could get NM without uh without uh you know really studying like you know the past or whatever anybody can do that too maybe yeah, I mean, I think most people can, you know, get to strong amateur level or maybe even master with two main things, and that's doing puzzles and playing games and analyzing those games. And I think those are like the two main things that anybody has to do to improve. And obviously studying top player games can be useful, but also, if you're like a 1200 looking at Magnus Carlsen's games, I don't think that'll be very useful for you because he's just, there are just a lot of ideas in his play where you won't be able to understand it without a stronger player explaining it to you. And like, actually, this goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier with coaching. I think with private coaches, obviously, there are some, you know, really fantastic teachers who can coach players of all levels, but for most coaches, I think, for most players, excuse me, for most players, I think the most effective coach for them is somebody who's maybe 300 to 500 points above their rating. Like, I don't think it makes sense for a 1000 to pay $100 an hour for a grandmaster because the grandmaster is so much higher rated than that player that when the grandmaster is explaining things, the grandmaster will take in like so many assumptions that might be natural even to a 1500 or like a 2000, but it's not natural to a 1000. Like the grandmaster is just so much higher 
irate that they make so many assumptions or even their explanations might not make sense to a 1,000 player. So like for me, if I were to start private, start coaching privately, I don't think I would accept players rated under like 1,500. And that's not elitist in any way. I just don't think I would, I don't think I would be able to do a good job with a beginner. You know, like if I were to teach somebody how to play chess, I don't know where I would start. Like I would probably forget on or casting or something. Even stuff as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I completely agree because I mean, I've, I've had two coaches um, and I think it, coaches, coaches are, are really good for, you know, kind of doing prep, looking through openings, kind of like talking about chess concepts, that kind of stuff sticks in your mind. I think that's something that you can't get like just by, um, you know, reading a book or whatever, just having somebody look through your games, give you second opinion. I think that's, that is very valuable. But in terms of the actual learning, I can comfortably say that, I mean, they can't help you learn at all you have to do all that work on your own. So, I mean, I'll get positions for like homework and I, I work on that on my own. And so I'm not really sure you need a coach for that. I, I, that's not really what I look for in lessons. I mean, I think personally, I've gone into the strength where I do kind of appreciate having, you know, kind of like grandmaster insights on, on, on openings and whatnot. But I have a friend who is he started playing in, in May. I think he just only knew the, how to move the pieces, but he didn't really know chess at all. And he just basically did exactly what you said, did a lot of puzzles and played a lot of games. And he would play like one or two, 15 plus 10 games a day, limited to that, analyze them thoroughly with elite chess, like opening explorer. And I think he's like 1450 ish, like chess.com now that from somebody from complete beginner in May to, to that, I mean, that took me three years to do. And he did in a couple of months and, that's even it's gone to the point where, you know, I'll watch him play and I'll I, I can't even really coach him like that anymore because I don't really I can't say moves with certainty. Like we were playing an end game and uh, I was watching him play an end game and I recommended some some move that was a total blunder. I was like, oh, that looks pretty good. And he lost the game because of that, because I'm not even that much better than him. Like I am, but I'm, I'm really not. So uh, I, I completely agree. I think like that, that's why I was curious if you did coaching, because I'm also like it is hard to be honest with yourself and say, who can I realistically help? Like even my brother just started playing recently after like three years of me begging him. And even, even like my brother, I told, I really cannot teach him. Like I, there's just so many things I, he's a complete beginner. There's so many things that I assume he would know that he just doesn't see. So I used to say he plays like a, like an educated monkey. Cause he just like would he'd be like 300 ELO, but now, now he has a real coach who he learns with and he's improved very nicely. Yeah, exactly. A coach should be more of a guide. You can't expect a coach to single-handedly push you to improve. You have to put in the work, and ultimately, it's you who uh, who causes your own who you know pushes yourself to improve. I mean, like, really, I think somebody can imp- like it's just you can improve in chess for free, right? Because chess.com is mostly free. Lee Chess is free. They both have puzzles and you can play games on those servers. So really chess improvement is free. Like you don't have to pay for a coach. You don't have to buy a trust base. Like people always say you should buy trust base. It's a great, it's great for openings or games databases or whatever. Like I have never owned trust base in my life. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think especially with the way online chess is blown up. There's just 
minimal barriers to getting into trust and improving. I think that's great. But I think it's a little harder to kind of like with openings, for example, it's very hard to really study an opening. If you like, if you, if let's say you really want to learn and, and there, there's no, honestly, there's no clearly good answer on how to do this because I've tried chessable, for example, to learn openings from there. And yeah, there, you learn a lot of lines, but you can't really internalize them that well. Um, you don't learn the concepts as well. It's just like, or like what I hate about chessable is that you'll be like, you learn something for Scandinavian, for example, and it says, uh, Oh, this is this is even dead draw. Like this position is a dead draw, and it's like yeah, for alpha zero, it's the alpha zero line. That alpha zero says it's a dead draw. In reality, it's like your queen is in the middle of the board, and like there's gonna be a pawn, uh, like a a pawn storm coming for you. So it's actually like really hard to play. So, but on the other hand, like you you watch YouTube videos. I don't know if there are any YouTube channels you like to watch for chess, or if you watch chess, you know, chess YouTube. But I, I know that there's one guy named Hanging Pawns who I started watching, and he does these really, like, beautiful, like, well-explained opening videos. But even still, he only has 18 minutes to show you a thing, you know? So that's the one place where I feel like you really do need to have a coach. But, I mean, when do you really need serious opening prep? Did you ever do serious opening prep on your road to National Master? Or was it also just probably all on your own, too, for the most part? Well, for me, my first coach was a local coach in Washington, uh, Grandmaster Greg Serber. Oh, wow. And he's a, but he's a, he's a chess author, isn't he? I, I feel like I've seen him. I've seen a lot of his posts on chess.com, though. Yeah, he publishes a weekly column for chess.com. Yeah. But yeah, mostly he's a local chess coach in Washington. And his philosophy around chess is really, you should just be trying to get better at chess. Like, he doesn't really teach openings. So I was with him until I was like 2150 or something. And that entire time, I didn't have that much focus on openings. Like the first opening I learned for Black was the French defense. And that was the only opening I knew how to play against E4 until I was like 2150. So I don't think openings are, I think openings can be very helpful once you get to like Strong amateur level, maybe 15, 1600. And for that, a coach is definitely very useful. I, in no way do I think openings are, are a necessity for getting better until you get to expert or master level. And I do really agree with what you said earlier about um, how a lot of times if you study openings on your own, you just look at the computer line and you know this is equal or this move is plus 0.1 better than the next move. So then you end up playing that move. But a lot of times what a coach can help with is they can assess the practicality of an opening or opening variation. Like when I was working with uh, Grandmaster Julio Sedora on openings, he helped me a lot to pick out some openings that were a little bit more offbeat and definitely not you know, favored by the computer, but which provided a lot of practical chances in games. And a lot of the openings I play now are probably like dubious to play at the top level even. But in a practical game, you know, like especially in a blitz game, something like a fast pawn storm or, you know, uh, throwing your H pawn down the board, it might be dubious according to the computer, but in a blitz game, it can be very effective. And even in a classical game where your opponent has two hours, 
a lot of times they will have to spend 20 or 30 minutes to find a good reply to whatever offbeat move you play. And that time difference can be a big advantage. Um, I mean, obviously at the top level. And yeah, I mean, this is one of the problems with looking at top level games, right? Because you watch their games and they play these like perfect openings, 20 moves deep prepared by computers. And every move is like alpha zero's top line or something. But I mean, they have to do that for top level chess because if they don't play the, the uh, top engine move then they will get punished for that. But when you're an amateur, like that sort of opening preparation or knowledge doesn't exist. Yeah. So like even the King's Gambit, people rag on the King's Gambit as being like a dubious opening. If Black knows what he's doing, then you know Black will get a big advantage out of the opening. But what I've found is most Black players just kind of assume that the King's Gambit sucks and they aren't really that prepared for it. So I think the King's Gambit can be like a great opening up until like master level or something, just because people don't know what to do against it. So in a practical game, you know, it is very effective. Scandinavian too, I know this is like, um, I remember I, I was so, some of my friends were just getting into chess. I'm like, oh, here, the first opening I teach them is Scandinavian for free. And they're like, oh, but I saw, you know, Hikaru Nakamura say that it's a bunk opening for, you know, and it's like, yeah, for grandmasters is bad. For, for a, literally anybody else, it's a fantastic opening. It's like an easy system. It's like you get grain pod structure. You get your pieces at good squares. Like, what is there to complain about? But it, yeah, it's like um, people have this reputation from like top level play and it kind of carries down. You know, one of the first things that my, uh, my, my coach, uh, he's a grandmaster. Actually, I had him on the podcast uh, last episode. His name is Ori Kobo. He's from Israel. And um, one of the first things he showed me was this, this line, the Nidorf, because a lot of people on chess.com love to play the Nidorf. It's like London system level of popular. And I, I don't understand why. It's exactly like what you said. You're going to play the, really going to play the Nidorf. Do you know these lines 20 moves deep that you can like really seriously utilize this? And I just, I use this one line where I just, I basically play G4 very early on. And I think I have like an 86% win rate in like 28 games or something like that. Something like absurd. Like I've won so many games, so many beautiful games too, like with Bishop sacrifices. I've almost never lost in this line. Um, and it's, it's literally just exactly like what you said. Like, yeah, it's one thing you play like, you know, because the night or if you read on Wikipedia offers like the best chances for, for black. Um, but it's like, okay, but you're, you're 1800 or whatever. You're not like really studying some, you know, big Nidorf book written by some expert, you know? So, uh, yeah, actually, th I think this actually segues into the last question I wanted to ask you for, for today. Um, you know, you're a national master. You've been playing chess for a long time. Uh, we just talked about openings. Something I've asked everybody so far, there's one opening that um, you had to uh, like recommend to anybody, all levels. What would you recommend? To all levels. Why so, okay. Well, this is not a specific opening, but I would just say to E4 players, learn how to play a D4 opening or even just a closed opening, right? Like the English or the ready. And to D4 players, learn how to play E4. Because I think one piece of advice I heard when I was stuck at 2100 and trying to get master 
is that you can improve your trust overall by learning a new opening. And it sounds kind of weird at first, but if you play a new opening that consistently gets you into certain pawn structures or certain types of positions that you aren't familiar with, that you don't have very much experience playing in, then learning how to play those openings can force you to broaden your knowledge of chess and to get you familiar with a lot of different types of positions. And that really helps improve your chess overall, not just in that opening. So for E4 players who really like open positions, you know, attacking chess and all of that, and they got some point, it's a good idea to learn a D, like D4 or another closed opening like the English or the ready, because that adds a positional aspect to your game and vice versa for D4 players as well to learn the uh, E4 or a similar open opening and to improve your attacking chess and to improve your tactical play. Yeah, I know. I think, I think that's great advice. It's something that I don't do. I think I've played E4, like out of like my hundred thousand games on chess.com. I think I've played E4 950 times. That's something I've, I'm thinking of learning the Catalan or whatever. So I, I, I agree with that. I think, I think that's great advice and I appreciate it. And with that being said, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, I know you're a busy student, so I wish you all the best with your studies. I also know Florida is a little crazy with Corona. So I hope, I don't know if you've gotten a vaccine, but if you haven't, I hope you get it soon. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'll see you in the LCWL someday. And uh, yeah, pretty good. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Take it easy.